And then, as you're doing that, you can grab your Bibles, and uh, we're going to be in, in Philippians chapter 4. Um, we are back into the series called Transcend, which we've been walking through the book of Philippians. And uh, so this is the, the last chapter that we're in, and just the last few sections of verses. So uh, we have only this week and a couple more weeks of the book of Philippians, so either you're really excited or you're really depressed, depending on if you like the series or not. But... But this morning, uh, we're going we're gonna to take a look at just two verses. Because remember the context. Paul is writing from a place of incarceration, and he's talking about joy and contentment and all these things that you would think like would be the furthest thing from what you would write about if you were incarcerated for telling people about Jesus. And he's writing to a group of people who he's very close with and he loves dearly, and they're going through suffering and persecution as well. But in the midst of all this, Paul's giving them specific instructions about from his own life about how they are able to live beyond the circumstances of their lives, not to be victims of them, not to be controlled by them, but to live beyond them. That's why we call this transcend. And so this morning, this, these two verses, particularly verse 8 that we're going to look at, um, primarily we're going to see Paul give us a list, a list of eight things that helps us to shape and frame how we should think. And the reason this is so important, because whether you and I believe it or know it or not, every action that we take, whether right or wrong or good or bad, is always preceded by what? A thought. It may be a split second, or it may be a long, drawn-out kind of contemplating what we're going to do, a process, and then we make a decision. There's always a thought. And so if you and I understand, if we can think the way that God wants us to think, then we can live the way that God wants us to live. Because as we think, so we decide to do. Now, this is really brought home this last week. Now, I'm a basketball fan, so this is very apparent and very to the forefront of my mind. Any NBA fans here that you watch the NBA Finals just concluded? Yes. So a few Warrior fans. I feel bad for you if you're a Cavalier fan. So back to game one. If you're not a basketball fan, I'll give you some context. By the way, people at first service told me, I didn't know. I've heard people talking about it, but I didn't know what happened. Well, here you go. Here's what happened. <laughs> so the Warriors just swept the Cleveland Cavaliers four to zero. Okay, games. They dominated them. The, the series ended in game one. It actually ended at the end of game one. And this is a picture of what I'll explain what happened. J.R. Smith, who plays for the Cavaliers, was about 4.7, 4.6 seconds left, and George Hill was at the free throw line, one of the Cavaliers, he's shooting. If he makes a basket, they're going to win the game pretty much. But here's the deal. The game is tied, and so the point is to get the ball in the basket before the clock runs out, and if you have more points, then you win. That's the basic assumption of basketball, okay? So J.R. Smith happens to get the rebound, which means the, his player misses. George Hill, or uh, uh, J.R. Smith gets the rebound, and he's three feet in front of the basket. And he dribbles outside away from the basket. And then he tries to pass another player, but it's too late. The clock runs out. They go into overtime, and they end up losing the game. Now, what happened in this process? Now, the picture you see on the screen, see J.R., there's LeVon James is looking at J.R. Smith, and this is the moment that J.R. Smith is looking at the scoreboard and realizing the game was tied. And this is what he says to LeBron next. I'm not going to play the video, but you can see he mouths this. He said this, I thought we were up. I thought we were ahead. So he thought that they're ahead. Why? Well, if you're ahead, you don't need to score any more points, and you don't want to get fouled, so you dribble away from everybody, thinking you're going to win the game, only to discover when the clock hits zero, you're still tied. <laughs> Cleveland never recovered from that moment. Now, I really feel bad for J.R. Smith, because most of us, when we make a, a big mistake like that, millions and millions of people don't get to see it played over and over and over again, right? 
But what preceded his decision to dribble the ball out was his thought was, we're ahead. But his thought was what? Wrong. So his action was wrong. So when we look at this couple of verses today, Paul's going to give us kind of a lens or an idea of what we should be filtering our thoughts through to line them up in such a way so that we actually do the things that Jesus wants us to do. We choose to do the right thing. We see the world Jesus wants us to see. And so if you have your Bibles, let me just read these couple verses and then we'll talk about them together. So in verse 8, Paul writes this in Philippians 4. He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What have you learned and received and heard and seen in me? Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So this whole message is based on eight words. Eight words or phrases that Paul uses to describe this is what our minds should be focused on. Because here's the question that we ask ourselves, and in fact, if you have teenagers, you've asked this question multiple times. What were you thinking, right? Anybody ever asked that question before? And then you make a mistake in your life, and you think, what was I thinking? And here's, here's the assumption. I wasn't really thinking. No, you were thinking. But you just weren't thinking the things that God wanted you to think in the moment, and therefore you ended up making a wrong decision. So what we're walking through is really asking that question of ourselves today. What are we thinking? And there's questions that we're going to ask of what we do think, what is in our mind. And the first one is this. The first word that Paul uses in verse 8 is ask this question, is it true? Is what in our minds is true? And the the concept of the word true that Paul's communicating here is it's a thought life that's based on what is dependable and real, not what is based in fantasy. He's saying, are you thinking true thoughts, real thoughts, like real world, real action, right in front of you thoughts, or are you living in a world of illusion, in a world of fantasy that's based on something that's not real and not true? Why is that important? Because sometimes we we buy the lie that I can live in fantasy, I can think about what it would be like to do these things, even though they may be wrong, but I'm never really going to act on them. Fantasy always eventually leads to reality if you live in it long enough. Because what happens is the fantasy in your mind is not enough to satisfy what you think that you need. In fact, the whole concept of advertising is based on this reality. What does advertising do? It paints a picture for you that, in a sense, is fantasy. Because what, what, what do... What, if someone wants you to buy their product, they're going to sell you this idea that if you have my product, if you have this thing in your life, then your life's going to look like this. How well does that work? It's very effective, but what's the outcome? So once you bought that car, is your world almost always better? When you finally got into your dream house, is now everything just wonderful? When you finally got that piece of clothing or that phone or whatever it is, you're like, now my life, now I can just die happy, right? Isn't that, right? That's the way it works. No. We have to have more. We find, ah, it really wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Because are we willing to admit at one time or another in your life, you gave in to the fantasy of marketing and you bit the bait? Anybody want to admit you've ever done that? Come on, raise your hands. Because this, this is what I think Paul is talking about. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'll be honest. I've done it a number of times where I'm like, and, and usually I'm, like, I'm pretty critical, so I'm like, ah, that's not real. But was, I don't know how long, I think it was like six months ago, I was watching TV, and I never do this. But I'm sitting there, and I'm watching TV, and a Carl's Jr. commercial comes on, and it's a commercial for the Western Bacon Cheeseburger, okay? Which I normally enjoy at Carl's Jr. I'm more of an in and out guy. If I want a good burger, that's what I'm going to go to. 
But I'm sitting there, and for some reason, the commercial just made it look really good. It's juicy, the big, you know, crispy onions, right? You know what I'm talking about? The cheese, the barbecue sauce. Am I making you hungry yet? Right? And it's like, uh, and I, I, no joke, I think Kim was there. I'm like, that looks good. So I shut the TV off. I got in my car, and I drove to Carl's Jr. I don't do that. And I'm thinking, this is going to be the best burger ever. And then I buy it, and I eat it, and I'm like, now I'm regretting it. Why? Because my stomach doesn't feel right. And so in between services, someone came to me and said, you know what? I did the exact same thing with the $6 burger at Carl's Jr. <laughs> Carl's Jr. must be doing some marketing wizardry to try to get us. But, but what is this that we're buying into? We're buying into something that's not based in reality. And that's called fantasy. And if we live in fantasy, then what happens is that we're not thinking true thoughts. We're not thinking in reality, and that's why Paul says, listen, you've got to base your, think, your thinking. This isn't to say that it isn't the reality of God doing big things and dreaming beyond where we're at. That's a whole different category, but when we think in fantasy, we're not thinking in reality, and when we try to make our fantasies come true, that's when we make poor decisions because our thinking is incorrect. Second thing, Paul goes on, and let's ask this question. Is what I'm thinking, is it honorable? So the concept of being honorable has to do with a thought life that's focused on worship and reverence and more on God than on myself. Now, that's hard, isn't it? Think about this. How many times in a day do you think about yourself? Oh, about a million, right? We're constantly thinking about ourselves. But what's honorable is when I have the capacity to think beyond myself, beyond what I want, and to think about what God is doing and what God wants and thinking about who he is and honoring him. That's a whole different category. Because on a daily basis, you and I go from one moment to the next thinking about, without saying it, what is best for me? What do I want in this? What, do I, what should I do? Thinking what our own thoughts, not thinking what's honorable, which is how do I look through the lens that God is using to see the world around me? It's easy to buy into thoughts that aren't necessarily what God is wanting you to think until God brings some correction, and you start to see things clearly. So a couple weeks ago, we were up in Seattle for our annual Foursquare conference, and so we're spending time in Seattle. If you've been to Seattle, you know that, that Seattle has a very high, uh, a high number of po uh, homeless people living on the streets in the city. And so you can't go from like one corner to the next without running into two or three homeless people. And many of them are positioned in just the right spots with just the right sign. In fact, our daughter Courtney was up there for probably about three weeks with different conferences she was a part of. And she said, Dad, she goes, I watched homeless people change costumes. They changed kind of their appearance and they changed their signs and they tried to work the angle. And so when she said that, I'm like, oh man, my pessimism is kicking in, over, in overdrive right now. So I try to carry around like a, a, a couple of like McDonald's gift cards that, that I can give if I don't have, I can't have, I don't have food on me or and I'm not going to give cash away, but I, I can give a, a gift card that they can go and get some food with. And so, so I have that in my pocket, but, but as we're walking the streets during the week, I'll just tell you, here's my thought process. There's the first thing as I'm seeing all these homeless people, I'm thinking, well, there's got to be resource in Seattle for people like this. That's the first thought. Like, they just haven't accessed resources yet. And if they, they just did that, then they could, you know, and, and then the next thing you're kind of thinking through, you think, well, it's because they, they've made a choice in life that they just don't want to get where they're at. And they could access the resources, but they're making a decision, so that's kind of where they're at. And, and, you know, anybody ever thought those thoughts? You want to be honest? This is kind of where I'm going with my thinking. I'm just kind of, I'm finding every reason in the book why I shouldn't help any of the homeless people in Seattle. And I just keep, we just keep running into them, and it's just kind of like, you know. And, and then, and then the, the final kind of thought of, like, futility, which is, God, there's so many of them. I can't possibly make a dent, so why even help any of them? Until God starts poking at your thinking and saying, that's, that's not the right perspective. Because God reminds me in the moment, you can help one. 
I didn't ask you to save all of Seattle and save every homeless woman. If you can help one, I'm like, yeah, I can do that. So we're walking down a staircase going, going down to the waterfront one day, and I wasn't like sizing up homeless people to see who's worthy of my McDonald's gift card. But it's like, okay, God, if someone gets highlighted, then... So we're coming down the stairs, and there's a gentleman on a, in a wheelchair, homeless guy, and he's got a sign. I didn't even read his sign. I just knew this is the guy I'm supposed to give the card. So I walked over and said, hey, I said, I don't know if there's a McDonald's close by. I said, but I've got a gift card. I said, would that be useful to you? Just go get a meal. He goes, oh, that would be perfect. He goes, yeah, there's just one around the corner here. And I said, well, here. I said, I just want you to know God loves you and God bless you. And he, I mean, he said this. He goes, thank you so much. And then he, he went on his way. Obviously, I hopefully went to McDonald's. I'm not going to question his motives. But I walked away from that, and I realized what had happened in my thinking is that, that I was thinking not the way that God thinks. I was thinking about the way I think. I was thinking about myself. I wasn't thinking about what this person's experiencing. And then God got a hold of me and said, no, you're not thinking in reality here. You're not thinking what I want you to think. You're not thinking honorable thoughts. Because what's honorable to the Lord is what is to help those who are in need. That's what God wants us to do. So it's a shift in letting God reshape the way that we think. In fact, listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 5. It says, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. God wants our minds to be shaped by His Spirit who lives in us. Third thing. Third thing is, ask this question. Is it just? Which has to do with kind of this concept of being fair. We want things to be fair or just or equal. So really what it comes down to is, what does it mean for it to be just? It means that living out in a way that, that there's a clear understanding of what is right and what is wrong, what is just and what is unjust. And so it's that basic thing. Do I make, and this is my, my, my kind of unscientific study of, of our faith, is that m probably 90% of us don't struggle with what is right or wrong. We know what's right or wrong. We just choose to do what's wrong. It isn't like, oh, I'm confused. I just don't know. 90% of the time, I think we pretty are cl pretty clear we know what's just and unjust, what's right and wrong. But if you go back to the first point, if you and I live in the fantasy of what could be that isn't what God has for us, eventually, when that opportunity shows up, guess what you are gonna, and I are going to do? We're going to choose the wrong thing. When we're faced with what's right or wrong, it won't be that we don't know what's right or wrong. It's just that we've been dwelling so much on what's wrong, the next step is going to be what? I'm going to do what I've been thinking about. So it's, it's going to be what? It's going to be unjust. It's going to be wrong. Why? Because my mind has been wrong for a long time. So the opportunity comes and my mind goes right there. I'd probably shared this, this story before, but this is the first time I really realized this is the way it works. I was in elementary school. And when I was in, a kid in elementary school, one of the cool things that guys had was that they had wristbands. Okay, like, you know, like the sweat wristbands that you would wear when you work out, you know? I know it's like, you're really old, Pastor John. Thanks, I know, okay? So, which, by the way, somebody told me in between services that, that, that she teaches kindergarten, and some of the kindergartner kids are wearing wristbands. I'm like, yeah, it's coming back, right? It's coming back. <laughs> so, but the coolest ones were the red, white, and blue ones. Those were, like, the coolest ones. And so I had a friend named Harris, and he had a, a pair of those wristbands, and he wore them every day. And I always, and I kid you not, I would look at Harris, and this is what I would think. What would it be like to be Harris? To wear the wristbands, Right? Just think that would literally in my mind, you know, as an elementary school kid, you're like, everybody would like me. The girls would think I'm all cool. My teachers, I'd get better grades, right? I mean, everything you go down that road. Why? Just because of these wristbands. So I had fantasized about what it would like be like to have Harris's wristbands. And then one day after I left my class, walking over from school, I'm walking a few uh, classrooms down from where my class is, and I'm not no joke. I turn the corner, and on the ground are Harris's wristbands, just sitting there. 
I'm like, this is a total setup, right? But I'm, I just looked at him, and the fr- oh, to be honest, the first thought that went into my mind was like, I should grab him and give him back to Harris, and that went right out really quick. Because then I looked at them, and I thought, the wristbands. It's like the ring from Lord of the Rings, right? <laughs> it's like the wristbands. And so I'm like, I picked them up. I didn't want to put them on yet, because I was still on school grounds, and people would recognize, those are Harris. But I got off campus, and I slid those babies on. Oh, man. <laughs> I looked at my arms. I'm like, man, I have arrived. I got the wristbands. There's a problem, though. I think I've told this before, but when your mom listens to the Holy Spirit, she ruins everything. <laughs> it took her less than an hour to figure out they weren't my wristbands at home, and she goes, they belong to somebody else. I'm like, yeah. She goes, well, then tomorrow morning, you're going to take them back and give them. So the next morning, I went to school without the wristbands on my wrist. They were in my backpack, and then I had to give them back to Harris. Why did I do that? Because I'd been thinking a whole lot about it and what my life would be like if I had the wristbands. And so it was very easy to choose what? The wrong thing. So what are you dwelling on? What are you focused on? Because when you're presented with a situation with right or wrong or just or unjust, if you're dwelling on what is wrong, guess what you're going to do? You're going to do what's wrong. That's why our brains have to be reshaped to think the way that God wants us to think. And then there's a fourth thing. Paul goes on, asks this question, is it pure? Now, we'll, our default when we think of purity is moral purity, and that can be part of this, but this also has to do with being consistent on the inside and the outside, pure through and through. That's kind of what purity is. And this one really hits home for us because one of the biggest challenges that we face, and this is tragic, the longer you know Jesus, the more tendency you have, ready, to be a hypocrite. Because the more you follow Jesus and the more he starts to change you, and then if you go back into old patterns, you don't want people to know that you're kind of still the old person. You want them to think you're brand new. So what do you and I do? We put on a new face. Remember the word hypocrite was what a Greek actor that put on a mask to act as though they were somebody else. It's, not, it's being fake. And so and Jesus had lots of things to say to Pharisees and religious leaders. But there's this disconnect. And what Paul's addressing here is that if we were to think Impurity, that means that what we're thinking is what comes out on the outside instead of what many of us do is what we think one thing and then compensate by doing the opposite thing so nobody knows what we're thinking, right? We become hypocrites. We live a lie. It's not true. It's not pure. It's not right. But we do it. Why? Because we don't want people to know who we really are. We have to get that out. Listen to to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 and 26. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. We can spend our lives doing what? Working really hard on the outside appearance, but never really be what God wants us to be. Why? Because inside we haven't come to grips with what's going on in us. And the issue really is not the mind, because the, the mind is the lens by which the heart expresses itself into our actions. So if we go deeper than our brain, we go where? To our heart. That's where the issue is. God needs to change our heart. So Paul's saying, listen, if there's a disconnect between what you think and what you do, you become a hypocrite. And the only answer to coming clean to that is a thing called confession. To confess what is inside of me that is not right and get it out. And in the moment of confession, you get it out of there so now it's no longer a secret. So it begins to lose its power in your life and then it provides accountability so the others know and they can help you to live purely. But that scares us. I don't want to let people know what's really going on inside. That's the only way that you and I can be free and that's the only way. Can you imagine what it would be like 
Now, for some, you're okay with this. Others, not. What if you could not, you had no filter, and whatever you thought came out of your mouth? Anybody seen the movie Liar, Liar? What if you couldn't lie? What if you couldn't hide? Everything you thought. What if right now, the very thought that's in your mind right now, you had to blurt out. You're like, oh, right? I don't want to say that. What if it was the opposite? What if you had no fear about what would come out of your mouth because you knew it was in your might was pure right before the Lord? What would that life be like? You and I wouldn't have to hide ourselves. We wouldn't have to run and make sure people don't see what's really going on inside because there would be a purity to our life. And then the fifth thing, and that is Paul uses this phrase, he uses the word lovely. Ask this question, is it lovely? Lovely sounds like a very flowery word, like isn't she lovely? Isn't that rose lovely? But really what it has to do with is it has to do with the action and the feeling of, of loving other people genuinely. So if our minds are thinking lovely thoughts, then we're thinking about the way that we can love other people instead of the way that we hate other people. That's a tough one because we can be loving on the outside and in the inside we're anything but loving. But think about the people around you and think about what comes out of you and ask the question, is this loving? Do I think loving thoughts about people? Or do I think bad thoughts about people? So here, let me, let's put this to the test. You've probably experienced this just like everybody else in Simi Valley. There's one place in our city that brings the worst out of every human being, even Christians. I've seen it happen. It's called Costco. <laughs> Anybody been there lately? So here's, let me just kind of, let me share probably your experience. Okay, when you go to Costco, you just better be ready because Every single person who goes there, even if they're nice before they get in the parking lot, something comes over them because I've seen it. You drive into the, you know, if I, for me, we're coming from my house, we're coming up Madeira, turning left, and, you know, and then I turn right into the parking lot, my blood pressure starts to rise, right? Because the first battle has begun. I got to find a parking space. And people, you, I don't know, something happens. Everybody in the Costco parking lot is a jerk. They just are, right? Because you're fighting for spots, and so you're not patient. You don't let anybody go for it. You cut people off, right? You do all, and then finally when you land that spot, and then, then you've got to move on to battle too, and that's just getting a cart. You ever been there on a Saturday when you're trying to get a cart, and then you're trying to go in the entrance, and you've got to show your membership card, and everybody's trying to cut in front of you like, like there's some prize on the other side of the door, right? You get in the door finally, and you're like, finally, and then you catch your breath, and you realize you're in a mob of people. And now you've got to go... For us, she's like, we just got to grab a couple items. Oh, that's the worst thing in Costco, a couple items, right? Because then you try to navigate the aisles, and then you come upon the little food stands. The worst. I've, I don't understand this. We live in a country where there's lots of food, but people go to Costco like famished, like fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and they... And this is what's crazy. I've watched it happen. You know this lady with a little net cap on and her gloves? She's waiting for the toaster oven to come out with you know, eight of her little cheese bagels that she's going to give out in these little, you know, cups. And there's 50 people waiting for cheese bagels. And the ding goes off and the rush is on and everybody's elbowing for cheese bagels. And they cost five cents and you can buy a hundred of them for, you know, a dollar, right? It's like, it's crazy. And then the worst happens. You hit the registers, right? Because then you don't, you, I know you, you just like me. You get there and you start surveying. Which is the shortest line and which line has people with the least amount in their cart, right? And then when you get in line, don't tell me you don't do this, you mark people. 
Like, mm, I'm going to get through this line before they do, right? Because they cut you off, and they took your spot, so you had to go in another line, right? So I'm, just get the point. And then, and then you think it's going to get better from there, but then you have to go through the line to get out, and you have to present your receipt. And people still cut in line. Why are you cutting in line? You're leaving. It's not like there's something out there, right? So is, anybody can relate to this, right? So a few days ago, Kim and I are in Costco. And this is happening to me again. I'm feeling the tension. And so we get to the register, and I come down that aisle, and it opens up in the registers, and it's crazy. I mean, there's all people lined up and everything, so I'm doing my typical, I'm marking, looking for carts, you know, where's the shortest line? And then I think we finally land in the line, and I'm marking people, just like I always do. And God says, look at their faces. I'm like, well, I'm not looking at faces. I'm looking at carts and how much they have in their carts and how long my line is. So look at people's faces. So I just stopped. I just started scanning all these hundreds of people. I'm just looking at their faces. God says, do you see them? And this is what he said to me. Not an audible voice, but he probably said, these are the people that I love. I'm like, really? <laughs> Did you see them fighting for the bagel? It's like, really? He said, these are the people that I died for. This is the city that you live in. Look at their faces. So I did. I just, for a few moments, I just kept panning back and forth, just looking at people, employees, people in line. It's amazing. The world comes to Costco, all kind of diversity, just looking, and God just kept saying to me, these are the people that I love. So you need to see them differently. I'll tell you, something happened in that moment. I was a lot more at peace. Because these weren't enemies anymore. These weren't competitors. These weren't people I were going to have to vie for something for. These were people that Jesus loves. I was happy from the register all the way, handing out my receipt and everything. Never been happy before walking out of Costco, but something <laughs> happened. That actually, for a moment, and I'll pray it happens next time. You can pray for me. I had lovely thoughts about people in Costco. That's a miracle in our city, right? But think about the way you and I think about people around us. Do we think loving thoughts as God wants us to? And then there's a few more. The, the sixth one that Paul mentions is, is it commendable? So the word commendable literally means fair speaking. This is important. Something that's commendable means that in, in the effort of fairness, you and I have the capacity to choose fairness for somebody else over fairness for ourselves. Because here's our definition of fairness. As long as it's fair to me. That's what it is. We want fairness. But not if it's unfair to me. Because sometimes fair to somebody else may not be fair to you. Talk to Jesus about that. But here, here's the, the challenge that we face. Is that one of the things we have to shift from. Is that you and I in our culture. We have bought into this mentality. And especially as Christians. This is opposite of what God wants us to think. Is that we have played the role of the victim in our culture. We're the victim of our circumstances. We're the victim of other people. We're the victim of all these things. And what that means is that vict a victim always looks at reality if they're looking through the lens of being a victim and they say, it's not fair to me. Now, this is not to downplay someone who's been victimized, but when you and I play the role and take on the identity of the victim, then what we're missing is that we're not seeing things clearly because the very thing that you and I have been victimized with and the very thing that we are victims of is sin and death, and Jesus took care of those things. 
We're no longer the victims. We're the victors. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. He paid for our sin, and you and I have a guarantee in eternity with him. So we're no longer victims. We have a way out. We're not powerless anymore because what if Jesus has done for us? But you and I have to think about this. We are constantly asking the question, what is fair to me? That's why we get frustrated with people, because we think our rights have been trampled on. And right now in our culture, this is like through the roof. My rights, my rights, my rights. What? At the expense of everybody else's rights. But what Jesus is wanting us to do is the opposite of that. What is commendable and honorable is when somebody will take their rights and their privileges and they'll leverage them for the sake of somebody else. That's what we call honorable. That's what we call commendable when we're willing to give that up. See, one of the things I've noticed in our lives, especially in our country, is that we want to be the hero of our own lives. We want to write our own story. We want to be the centerpiece. We want to be the hero. That's, that's why all of our movies and books are written that way, that you're like, you're the hero. But you know what? There's another category of hero that you and I forget about, and it's the category hero that I believe that God wants us to be. It's the category of superhero. Because if you watch, I'm not a huge superhero guy, but I'll watch, you know, Infinity War and some of the other ones, Avengers and stuff like that. But you know what the definition of a superhero is? It's somebody who has an ability that other people don't have, but they don't use that ability for themselves. They use it for the benefit of others. That's what Jesus did. And that's what he calls us to do. He says to think in a way that's commendable, which means I don't look at other people and think, it's not fair to me. I look at other people and say, it's not fair to them. And what am I going to do to make it right for them? That's the privilege that we have as Christians because Jesus did it for us. That's what Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians. He says, though he was rich, Jesus, he became poor for our sakes, what, so that through his poverty, we might be rich. Right? That's what Jesus did for us. So that's the way that we're supposed to look at the world. Not like what's fair for me, but ask the question, what's fair for them? What's right for them? Two more things. Ask this question, is it excellent? Paul uses the word excellence. This has to do with a life that's focused or a thinking that's focused on what is the most excellent state of my life, the way I should live my life that is most pleasing to God and what God has purposed for my life. Hear me on this. Not what you have purposed for your life and ask God to bless, but what does God ask me to do in my life? What is God purpose? What is the ideal state of my life? How much time do you spend thinking about that? Thinking about what does God have for my life, what dreams does he put in me that he has for my life that answer to the bigger picture of what he's doing in the world, not what, is, what do I want to do in my life, and then I'm going to pray the prayer that God would bless my life. No, I'm going to ask God, God, what are you doing already? How do I fit into that? What are the hopes and the dreams and the way that you've gifted me, that you've called to me to be there? What does my ideal life look like? That's the most excellent thing. How much time do you and I think about the vision that God wants to give you for your life that's now in competition with the agenda that you think your life's supposed to be have? Here's the question, and I've seen it time and time again in my life, and man, I, I wish I wouldn't keep repeating the same mistake. But every time I vie for my ideal and think once I get there, I'll be happy, I realize that I'm totally dissatisfied. But when I'm willing to let go of those ideals and think, well, okay, maybe God has something bigger, and lay down what I think I need to be happy, it's amazing how much more fulfilled I am in my life. Anybody relate to that? It happens all the time. What picture has God given you of your life that you've tried to downplay because you think the cost is too high? Because you think it, it can't possibly make you happy because your idea of happiness is what? More money, bigger house, nicer car, more in your career, whatever. That's, that's what we think. But what if there's another way? What if God gives you a vision that doesn't look anything like the American dream, but it looks like the dream that God wants to place in your life? 
just got really quiet. I can hear the air conditioning now. Because God gives it to all of us. There's glimpses of it, but sometimes we try to push it down. No, 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 it's too hard. But what is fulfilling is always hard. So let me, let me share a picture with you. I'm going to brag on my daughter again. You can put the picture up. She's the white one, if you don't know. Okay. <laughs> this is a picture of Courtney in Kenya. So the backstory, and most of you know this, so Courtney made a pretty incredible announcement to Kim and I when she was nine years old. And that announcement was she was going to move to Africa when she was old enough. She was going to marry an African man and have African babies. Now, these are not her babies, okay? Because we did inform her that, you know, you're part of the equation, so they won't probably be as white as, or as black as you think they're going to be. But this was something that she, from nine years old, this wasn't like a nice little thought that went away. This was a constant reminder to Kim and I. She said, I'm going to go to Africa. So this was taken, I think, in March. She got to go to Kenya. Look at her face. Just, just look at her face. It's like one of my favorite pictures of my daughter. She's in heaven. She she's loves what she's doing. But what she's experiencing now started 13 years before that. When she was nine years old. And she was thinking about the vision that God gave for her, which is, I'm going to go to Africa, and I want to help people in Africa. Now, pray for us, because I know when Courtney's done with her internship in a year, she's probably going to come announce to mom and dad, I'm moving to Africa. <laughs> pray for us. But if that's where God wants her to be, I mean, how could I take that away from my daughter? The most excellent vision that God has given her for her life looks like this. What is it for you? What does your mind dwell on? Courtney had that image in her mind 13 years before it ever happened. What image do you have in your mind? What's the most excellent way that God has laid on your life? What does God have for you that you've downplayed that God knows? It's bigger than your life. It's costlier than when you want to pay, but it's more fulfilling than you've ever, you'd ever experience in your life. And then one final, final point is this. <clears throat> Paul uses the phrase worthy of praise or praiseworthy, so ask this question, what is praiseworthy? And this has to do with what builds up others instead of tearing them down. So when you think of praiseworthy, that you think of attributes about people or about God that would make you want to be in awe or, or, or amazed at what somebody can do. What if in our minds we thought about, instead of thinking what's wrong with people, what's negative about people, we actually looked at people and valued them the way God valued them, and what shaped our thinking was, what is praiseworthy about that person? Because whether you know it or not, every person, even your enemy, even the person who's most sinful, is created in the image of God. And there are things that are praiseworthy about every person. The question is, are you and I thinking about those things? Are we trying to find those things to show value to people? Because those are the praiseworthy things about God's creation and God's stamp on their life because they have this certain ability to think about what's praiseworthy. Think about it, about people that you don't like. Think about your enemy. Oh, there ain't nothing praiseworthy about my enemy. I guarantee there is. What about a family member that you've been pained by? Oh, there's nothing, nothing good about, yeah, there is. What about a sibling that you can't get along with? Just think about that. What, do you and I take enough time to discover what's praiseworthy about people, or do we just write them off? Do we just stereotype them? Do we just kind of pretend we fill in the blanks for them? So let me show you a picture. When we were up in Seattle, one of the other things that we did is we went to the Mecca of coffee. Starbucks. 
there literally is a Starbucks on every corner in the, in the city of Seattle. It's crazy. But this Starbucks is like no other. This is the reserve. This is the roastery. This is like the place that you go and they show you how they roast the beans. And it's like this whole process. I mean, I learned more about coffee than I ever wanted to know about coffee. Uh, those of you who know John Looney, he's our associate pastor. He's a coffee-aholic, and he just loves coffee. When we walked in the door, he was filming. I mean, like the whole time. He's like, pictures, filming. He's like, died and gone to heaven, right? And so you go in, and there's all these different areas. They even have a bakery in there, but they have some different places where they're making different kinds of coffee from different places in the world. They kind of tell you about the roasting process. You can see the big roasters. It's just amazing. This, this is in the center of kind of this one bar where literally the beans come down those pipes, and they drop into each of those cylinders, and then obviously they're ground, and then you can get different kinds. Of, they, they brew it differently, and you can have different tastes. I mean, I learned a whole bunch of stuff. It's pretty cool. So I'm sitting at this, this bar uh, around here, and, and so you're ordering these coffees, and you get what's called a, f uh, a flight, and it has different, like, little, almost looks like shot glasses of coffee, and you drink them, and you get different flavors and stuff. And so we're sitting there, and so one of the baristas, there's probably about six or seven behind that particular bar, I just, she was right in front of me, I said, hey, I said, can you tell me a little about your story? And she's like, my story? I'm like, how did you get here? Like, to this Starbucks? And she goes, oh, like, that story. So I'm like, what story do I have? Right? I'm like, no, tell me how you got here, because... This is pretty significant. She goes, well, she goes, I started back uh, when I was younger. I, was, I started at a Starbucks that was like one of those kiosks in, in, the, in a grocery store. And she said, I kind of worked my way into like a regular store. And she said, and then eventually I became a supervisor. And then I started managing stores. I'm like, wow. And she goes, and then eventually I got here. I said, well, I said, like, everybody in this room, everybody right here, I've everyone manager. She goes, well, almost all of them. She goes, I've only been here for three months. She goes, but all of my supervisors, all the people right above me, which is everybody in the room right now, they've all managed stores, and they're all, like, the elite. I said, like, the elite? She goes, yeah, like, like these are, like, the top of Starbucks. So I'm like, okay, this is different than, you know, the teenage barista behind the bar that you're, like, you know, can't make your coffee right, right? So I'm just like, wow. And I said, so let me ask you this. I said, what do you love about your job the most? She goes, honestly, she goes, I love being around people who love what they do. She goes, everybody in this place is passionate about coffee. I'm like, they better be, right? It's a Starbucks. She goes, they just love what they're doing. And as you look around, looked at all these baristas, you could tell there was a drive and a passion to do what they were doing. And as I'm watching them do things that I know that I don't, I don't have the drive to do and probably couldn't do, I was just marveled at the ability that this is like the all-stars of Starbucks doing their thing right in front of me, doing their craft. And so I was just watching, and we sat there for a long time, and I just was thinking, this is amazing. This is like the elite. How many times do you walk into a Starbucks and you get impatient with a person who can't make your coffee right or fast enough? But the reason you're in Starbucks is because you can't make it yourself, right? When did you stop for a moment and think, wow, look at what's praiseworthy in their life. You're like, John, you're talking about coffee. Yeah, I am. When's the last time you took your car to the mechanic and you marveled at the fact that the mechanic can fix the car that you can't? When was the last time you went to the dentist and marveled at the fact that the dentist could do stuff to your teeth that you didn't know he could do? When was the last time you saw a checker in a checkout stand at a grocery store who could whiz stuff past that scanner faster than you could believe and was friendly doing it? When did you marvel and, and think of what they were doing as praiseworthy? Is this is what Paul's talking about. Do you see people around you and find in them the things that are the mark of God, things that are God's creative touch on their life, things that God would say, this is praiseworthy about who they are. Even the very people that you think you can't stand, God can show you through your own thinking to say this is praiseworthy.
If that's the lens that we look through, that's the lens that we see, we will see the world very differently. It doesn't mean we won't see good and evil, bad or, or, or right and wrong. We will see that, but we will find that we will see people the way God sees them. So let me close with this, a couple things. A few years ago, thing came out, big craze, bumper stickers, wristbands, t-shirts, WWJD, which stands for What Would Jesus Do? It's a good thought, it's a good concept, but there's a problem with it. Because to do what Jesus did, you have to think like Jesus thought. You can't just go out and do what Jesus did. If we could just go out and do what Jesus did, I'd give you a Bible, say, go home, read it, and don't ever come back to church. Just be obedient, right? It doesn't work that way. We have to live the life that Jesus lived. We have to think the way that Jesus did. We have to have the heart that Jesus had. That's why Paul talks about this thing that we're supposed to what, have the mind of Christ, because our mind doesn't work right. And that's why even Paul said again in Philippians chapter 2, he said, our, our mind should be the same as Christ Jesus. And then he talks about how he leveraged his position as God for the sake of others. So I think a better question is not, what would Jesus do? It's what would Jesus think? How would Jesus think about this situation? How would Jesus think about this person? How would Jesus think about life? And ask that question. And I guarantee you and I will have surprising answers if we're honest about what he says. I want to close with this. I'm going to ask you if you just close your eyes. I'm going to pray. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to lay hands on yourself. But before we do that, I want you to be reminded of this. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says very quoted passage. He talks about being a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing, acceptable to the Lord. And then in verse 2, he says this phrase. He says, do not any longer be conformed to this world then he says this but be transformed by the renewing of what your mind and he goes on to say that when this happens then you will be able to know what what god's will is his good and pleasing will his excellent will for your life. You will see the world the way God sees the world. Why? Because your mind has been transformed, and in the transforming process, your life changes. So in a moment, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask you just to do, do it right now. Just take your hands, just put them, put them on your forehead. Because what God needs to do in us today is He needs to transform our minds. He needs to change our thinking so that our lives are reflected of the things that Paul's list in this passage. And before I pray, just hear me. The tendency is to walk away and try to work harder and just try to fulfill and check off the eight things on the list, but that's not, that's not how this works. We have to have the mind of Christ. We have to have the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to pray that God would do that in our hearts and our minds. So Jesus, as we lay our hands on our heads today, and, and Lord, the, the minds that you have given to each one of us, Lord, what the world and the enemy and our own sin has tried to corrupt, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would renew our minds, that you would transform our minds in such a way that we would begin to think in categories that would actually allow us to live the life that you created us to live. Lord, I start by asking that those that are here today who have lived in fantasy, 
Lord, maybe it's that they have bought into an idea that they saw on a page or on a screen somewhere, and now they've gone down a road in their life, Lord, that they, they have tried to contain in their mind what they know is wrong, but now it's made its way into their lives. I pray right now that, Lord Jesus, that you would bring about in each one of us conviction that leads to repentance and the repentance that leads to freedom from the things that we've lived in in fantasy. Lord, I pray that for each one of us who in our own mind we've thought more about ourselves than about others, we've made things more about making things fair for us and not worrying about others, that now, Lord Jesus, that you would change the lens that we look at people through, that we would start to ask the question, what's fair for them, what's right for them, and then, Lord, that you would show us how we can leverage our ability, our privilege for the sake of others. That, Lord, my, my final prayer is this for us today that you would give us a vision of our lives that you created us to have, that when you created us in our mother's womb, you laid out a purpose for each one of us. And that purpose, Lord, directly relates to your purpose in the world. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us a new or bigger vision for what you have in store for our lives. Erase the lines that we have drawn of boundaries of where we won't go and what we won't do for you. And Lord, let those be replaced with the vision of you that shows us what you have in store for our life that is that picture of, Lord, on Courtney's face, the joy of being right where you want us to be, Jesus, that we would experience that no matter what the cost. So come and transform our minds, change our minds, transform our lives. In Jesus' name.